What does the word good mean? Think about that for a minute, because we all call different things in our lives good, but yet we may disagree on what good actually is. So what does that word actually mean? My girls love to ask me this question over and over again. Anytime I'm alone with them or anytime they have my attention, they like to ask me questions like, Dad, who's your favorite superhero? Or they'll say, Dad, what's your favorite movie? Or who's your favorite actor? And they both ask this question, not because they really care about what my favorite movie is or who my favorite actor is or who my favorite superhero is. They ask me these questions because they want to tell me who their favorite is. That's really what they're trying to get after because they want me to ask in, in kind. And when I ask them, hey, girls, well, who's yours? You know, or what's yours? And they answer. And if they don't like my answer, they have no problem at all telling Telling me why their choice is better than mine. And they love to ask these questions all the time about movies, actors. I don't really like him, don't really like that movie. I don't really care for that hero or whatever the case may be. I like this one better. So if the word good becomes relative and it's determined by and defined by what each one of us prefer or what each one of us like, I mean, how do we really know what is good? Because if we say God is good, what does that mean? Because if we take that same type of defining the word good in human terms and we place it on God, then we're saying God is good when He does things I like. We're saying God is good when He makes everything go my way. We're saying God is good when everything works out the way that I want it to. Think about this for a minute. What does it mean to have a good day? What does it mean to have good weather? Because I love riding motorcycle, and you know what a bad day for a motorcycle rider is? A rainy day. But you know what a good day for a farmer who has crops that are about to shrivel up and die because of a lack of rain? Rain is a good day for the farmer. So rain's a good day for the farmer. Rain's a bad day for the guy wanting to go on a vacation on his motorcycle. So then we have to understand something about God when, it talks, when the Scripture talks about how God is good. It doesn't speak to God's goodness based on our preference, based on what's favorable to us. God gets to be good all by himself, all on his own, in his own terms. And so that means you and I may experience things that we don't think are good, but God still calls them good. That's hard for us. We don't like that. Because how can something be challenging for me and be bad for me, and God goes, that's good because I don't think it's good. It's not favorable for me. It's not something that I particularly enjoy. So how can things that I may think are bad or things I'd rather avoid, how can they be good? And then more importantly, how can God still be viewed as good in the middle of it? Let's go over to 1 Peter this morning where we've been teaching verse by verse through 1 Peter as we've been just going through this as we've been doing this series, we uh, have been handling each one of these uh, it, it, to, to make sure we're bringing out the proper context to make sure that we're understanding what's going on. And just to give you a refresher, if this is your uh, first time jumping in on this series or if you've missed a couple, Peter is writing to the churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day 
Turkey, all right? He's writing to a group of different churches, and so this isn't one letter to just one particular church. This is a letter that's written to basically all of the Christians who are living under the pressures of their world, where they're living under Roman rule, under the Emperor Nero, who was not favorable towards Christians and Christianity. So society at the time of this writing was very hostile towards Christianity. So they're living in this kind of society where there's pressure from the outside to get them to conform or recant their faith. But at the same time, those pressures on the outside are causing divisions and pressures on the inside as well. Does that sound familiar at all to anything that's happening in our world, where there's societal pressures that affect our lives to the point to where they also cause internal issues? And so we've been talking about how to navigate living in a world that's very anti-Christ, but yet being good representatives of Christ. And then last week, we talked about authority and how authority plays a role and how we need to view authority in light of doing it for the sake of the Lord and living in light of eternity. So then Peter shifts a little bit in his letter, and he's primarily been dealing with how our relationships in society affects the church and those external things outside of the family of God. But now he shifts his focus to actually begin to deal with how we as the family of God, how we as brothers and sisters should also treat one another and live in light of eternity and care for one another. And so we want to talk about having a good conscience today. With that in mind, let's read 1 Peter chapter 3. We left off at verse 7 last week, so we're going to start at verse 8 and read through verse 12 just to get things kicked off. So 1 Peter 3, verse 8 through 12. Peter writes this, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain blessing. Stop right there for just a moment. We see that Peter is addressing the body of Christ. He's talking about them because he says unity of mind. Now, he's not saying we should have unity of mind with the world, right? We understand he's talking now towards the Christians and how they should be of like mind. To do what? To have this united attitude, this united representation to those who would want to do evil to them, to those who would want to cause them harm, those who would want to slander them. And he's saying you all need to think this way. It's very important that the body of Christ gets in unity on the way that they understand they're carrying this representation of Christ in the earth and this message of Christianity. And he tells them some things they should do, some things they shouldn't do. He says, you guys need to be unified. You need to have sympathy. You need to make sure that you're walking in brotherly love, that you're having a tender heart, that you're having a humble mind. And then he shifts to begin talking about this is the type of attitudes and actions that should come out of the church, the body of Christ from the Christians, not to repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain blessing. Verse 10, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Here we see he's making sure that we understand this is how we are to live and we all need to be united on this front. It doesn't need to be something to where we disagree on. These are the core elements that the church should agree upon when it comes to the way we live in the world but yet not being of the world. 
These are the things we should have no problem as the body of Christ getting on board with. Now, I know that there are people in this room and people watching online and people sitting out in our commons area. You come from a different background. You come from a different set of values. You were raised differently. You had different ideas about the way the world works. But yet we all come in here, and there's a lot of things that we could highlight that would separate us and divide us. A lot of things. There are a lot of preferences that we have, things we would call good and we could divide the room if we took a poll and said, everyone who thinks this way, sit over here. Everyone who thinks this way, sit over here. If we did that, we would have a very divided room. And so instead of point out all of those things, Peter begins to highlight the things that are non-negotiable. He begins to highlight the things that matter most. He begins to say, listen, guys, these things you should have unity of mind in. These are not things that should divide you. Because the enemy would love nothing more than to get a foothold in the church, in the body of Christ, in the fellowship, in the brotherhood, in the sisterhood, in this family, and cause problems because it does a few things. First of all, it sullies the name of Christ and it deteriorates the influence of Christians in their day because people go, I don't want to be a part of all that hot mess. Those people can't even get along. Their message is one of love. Their message is one of forgiveness and unity. Man, all they do is gossip and backbite and slander and all they do is tear each other down. All they do is wound each other. That's not very attractive to those who are outside of the family of God. Amen? And that's why Jesus said the calling card of a disciple of Jesus would be the love we have for one another. That's how people would know we're disciples of Christ. And so there's something wrong, there's something dysfunctional if the church can't figure out how to love each other and how to get along. This is not just something that we do once a week, folks. This is not something that we do that's just another thing on the itinerary where you check it off of your list of things to do and you feel better about yourself because you showed up, you heard a good little message, you sang a few songs, you may have received communion, maybe you said a few prayers, and now I feel like I've done my spiritual duty for the week, and then you just exit stage right. That's not what we're supposed to be about. We're supposed to be about loving each other beyond this moment, beyond this gathering in our day-to-day -day lives. Amen? We are supposed to be caring for one another, and we are supposed to be the type of church that is pursuing unity amongst the brethren, even though we understand and we respect that there are differences of opinions, there are differences of ideas. We focus on the main things, and we keep the main things the main thing. First of all, the main thing is Jesus. Amen? Amen. And so once we've got that figured out and we go, all right, everything is going to flow from there. I'm going to seek first Jesus and his kingdom. Everything else is going to saturate my life and filter down from there. And it's going to impact and affect every other piece of my life. And I need to make sure that I'm understanding that first and foremost as a Christ follower. Because how we live in this world, it matters, folks. It matters a lot. And the gospel matters more than me getting my way. So that may mean that life doesn't go my way. That may mean that the election doesn't swing the way I want it to. That may mean that I don't have the person in political office that I want. That may mean that my boss doesn't make the policy or the changes at work that I want. How do I respond? How do I respond when my brother or sister in Christ doesn't do what I want them to do or think they should be doing? Do we just run to gossip? Do we run to texting and in secret and slander? Do we run to one another? Oh, did you see this on social media? Did you see what so-and-so said? Did you see what they posted? Oh my goodness. 
they need to listen to pastor sermons, what they need to do. And any time, let me just give you, this is a little side sermon, this is for free. So any time you're thinking about someone else during a Bible teaching or a Bible reading or a sermon or church service, it's probably a good indication that you need to pause and take a long, hard look in the mirror because it's not about the other person. He's dealing with you. He's dealing with you. That is what it is. But we're going to honor God best by loving others well, by loving one another well, and it starts with the love that we have for Jesus. It starts with our surrender to him and our acknowledgement of the gospel and what he's done by saving us, by making us new. That's where it all starts. And Peter here is trying to help them to see, listen, how you love each other matters a whole lot. But then also how you love those outside of the family faith matters a whole lot. Now, I'm not going to be in unity of mind with the world. I'm not going to think like the world. I am going to think differently. I am going to live by a different set of values. I am going to live by a different standard than the world. But that doesn't mean that I just stay inclusive and I don't love and build relationships and share the truth of God's word with those outside. So this is a twofold thing. Some people go to extremes to where they either want to be hyper-focused on their relationships within the church and they just forget about those who are in the world that are lost and dying and have no hope. And then others, they only want to focus on those outside of the family of faith and they don't want to build any relationships with brothers and sisters in the church and in the body of Christ to sharpen each other and build each other up. They just think we need to be all about winning the lost at any cost. It's both. It's both. It's not one or the other. Don't, don't, don't say, how can you have this false dichotomy to, to be able to say that this is more important than this? They both are important. They both matter. And we need to seek unity in the body of Christ, and we need to be representing Christ well to those who are outside of the family of faith. Amen, church. You see, when Christians love one another well, it's going to bring strength to the body of Christ. And that's what Peter continues to talk about. So let's read verse 13 through 17. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you, for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Here he's saying, listen, uh, even if you're loving each other well and you're having the same mind, as the body of Christ, and you're loving those outside of the family of faith, and they still want to harm you, and they still are wanting to persecute you. They're still making life difficult. That boss is still making life difficult because you're a Christian, no matter how good of an employee that you are. No matter how much you stay uh, late, how much you show up early, no matter how much overtime you're willing to sign up for, no matter how uh, excellent you do your job, they just continually make things difficult for you. He's saying, listen, if, if that's part of the deal where stuff is still hard, even though you're doing 
what's right. It's better for you to keep a good conscience towards God, knowing you're doing it as unto the Lord, and that also helps you to keep a good conscience towards man, even if that means it might be difficult and it might cause you to suffer for a little while. And God doesn't God doesn't uh, uh, turn a blind eye or a deaf ear to those things. He, he sees those things, and you're actually laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven. This is eternal rewards. You may not see the reward for all of your hard work and all of your diligence and all of your integrity here on the earth representing Christ, but we're not living for the, the, the earthly rewards that we experience. My confidence is not in the rewards I receive now. My confidence is knowing that my eternity is wrapped up and secured in the saving grace of Jesus Christ who gave himself for me, and I'm living in light of eternity, serving him, knowing that what I'm doing here on earth is impacting and influencing eternity. And when I see him, the reward I'm going to receive should be well done, good and faithful servant. And there should be no greater reward in my mind. There's nothing that should compare on this earth. There's nothing that I could acquire, nothing I could achieve, nothing that I could attain for myself and, and, and parade as a trophy that would matter more than hearing Jesus say that. There are no other accolades that compare. Amen, church? And when we love each other well, it strengthens the body of Christ because it helps us remember that we are not alone. Helps us remember that we are together in this. And that's why that unity of mind is so important because we can drift. There's this thing in the business world. Some of you have read books where it talks about it. It's called organizational drift. It's where the organization has a purpose, has a why. It's clearly defined and everyone is on the same page trying to achieve the results of the organization. But then somewhere along the line, when it goes unchecked, there's a little compromise here, a little compromise there in the values, a little compromise here in the direction. And then before you know it, there's been this huge drift. And one day someone goes, wait a minute. We were supposed to be about doing these things and pursuing these things. How did we get so far? Because organizational drift always happens subtly. It's never something that just happens overnight. And it's the same way when we drift from the purpose that God has placed in our heart. That's why it's so good for the body of Christ to sharpen each other and hold one another accountable. We don't really even know what that word accountable means. We think it means sending someone a text message once a week. That could be part of it. So I'm not downplaying that if you do that. But accountability is spurring one another on, being willing to confront one another in love, being willing to ask one another the hard questions, being willing to care about one another, to get involved in the intimate details of life, lest I begin to stray away from the purpose that God has called me to. Lest I stray away from the things that, 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 that I know God has called me to and the things that I should be focusing on and the life I should be living because, man, if we don't have those intimate relationships where we're willing to be vulnerable and transparent, you want to know what's going to happen? You're going to get really good at being fake to people. And we become experts at hiding what's really going on because we haven't opened up our chest to be vulnerable and show someone our heart. And if we do that long enough, we begin to read our own press and buy into our own false narrative that we've created. And then we begin to think we're good because we begin to compare ourselves with other people. And if you start comparing yourselves with other people to search for and seek out that 
good conscience, then you are defining good on your own terms as better than someone else. And if you think or perceive that you are better than someone else or because of what you have done, what you're currently doing, or more importantly, a lot of times it's what I haven't done, right? If that's how I determine what is good, if that's how I define what is good, then I am operating off of a false definition of what it means to have a good conscience before God and man. It's this thing of, I'm doing better than you, so I mean, at least I'm not as bad as those people, you know? You can even do that as a church. Man, at least our church doesn't have those kind of problems like that church has. Uh, At least, you know, at least I don't have these things going on in my marriage like those people do. If you're a business owner, you can think, at least I'm not doing those types of things that that business is doing. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. I'm not doing those things those other fellow employees are doing. All of those things we do to compare ourselves, to give ourselves a little boost. And it's a false definition of good, but we would say that we're doing good and we would feel good about ourselves. And we're not living with a good conscience, as Scripture talks about, because we're not doing it as unto the Lord. It doesn't matter what accolades you receive. It doesn't matter what someone is doing or is not doing. Are you living with a clear conscience before God and man? That's what matters. And we need one another as the body of Christ to strengthen one another and hold one another accountable lest we drift. Lest we drift into uh, redefining good on our own terms. When Christians love one another well, it strengthens the body of Christ. We have to be reminded of our why of our purpose and we need to spur one another on to good works and right living before God especially in a culture that wants us to drift especially in a culture that wants to draw our hearts away from Jesus Christ let's keep on reading we're going to read quite a bit of text here we're going to go through chapter four and we'll stop along the way and talk about it because there's some weird stuff here we're about to get into some weird stuff and when you get into weird stuff in the bible let me just help you a little bit. We always want to know what does it mean. And sometimes you can look and, you know, do a little digging and you can figure out what it means. And sometimes you go, that's weird. I have no idea. There's something that's going to be said here in a couple of places that we're about to read that's one of those, yeah, that's weird. I don't know. It could be a lot of different things. And so here's what you have to do. When you come across those things that may be challenging in Scripture, you have to look at what's the intent of the author that was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write to this original audience. What was the intent? What's the overall purpose? Read the context and ask yourselves, what is the actual purpose of what's being said? Lest we divide the church and split over things that are secondary or maybe not even secondary. It's way on down the list. Um, But yet there are some things that are a little challenging in this passage of Scripture, just to give you a little heads up as we dive into this a little bit more. He's going to talk about suffering here um, while you're doing good. That means I'm doing good. I'm living before God with a clear conscience. I'm living before man with a clear conscience, but my life is difficult in the process. Okay, that's what he's talking about. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. He's saying that Jesus, the righteous one, suffered for the unrighteous us. So he's putting us in our place before we knew Christ. So now we've been made righteous in the eyes of Christ through faith and through what he's done for us. But he's saying, listen, he did this for you. So Christ suffered and he didn't suffer because you were already good or because, you know, he was just like, oh, I really like that one. That one's a good one. I pick that one. I'll die for that one. 
No, Scripture says he died for us while we were enemies of God, while we were still sinners. That's when Christ died, when we were unrighteous, when we were cut off. That's when Christ died, not when we had gotten good and he liked us because we just had a sparkle in our eyes, you know. He said, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So there's a lot of weird stuff in that text there. He talks about Jesus preaching to these spirits, right, um, that were in prison. And there's a lot of different things that people think. Because in the context you're looking, he also references Noah. And he talks about the flood of Noah. He's using that as an example for uh, what baptism is actually like. And he's talking about being baptized in the Spirit of God and how he has cleansed us and how he's put his Spirit in us and he makes us new. So looking at the context of this, he's talking about the sufferings of Christ and then what Christ did and how he's made us alive. And I don't know what it means that he went into prisons and spoke to the spirits. There's like three, four different mainstream ideas on that, and we can argue about those another day. Um, but I would encourage you just to research that and look that up because there are a lot of different ideas on that. Um, but that's not the main point of what we're talking about here because he's trying to bring out this idea of salvation through Christ and what he did, and he uses the Ark of Noah as an example. And he says here, he says that uh, it was when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. So in other words, you remember during the days of Noah, what was going on simultaneously while Noah was building the ark to help everyone escape from the flood? Noah was preaching. Noah was prophesying as a prophet. He was calling people to repentance. He was, he was doing the same thing that Christ is said to have done to the spirits in prison. And so he, he's, he's preaching as in the days of Noah. So he's saying, you, the church, you're preaching. You're, your lives are supposed to be this megaphone preaching the gospel to those. There's this ark here. There's this way of escape from this terrible flood, from this disaster, what the Bible calls the great and terrible day of the Lord. There's an escape. There's a way out. And it's through this baptism in the Spirit where He actually cleanses you and breathes His Spirit, His life in you. And it's just like the way that, that, that Noah and was preaching to the people. But man, they, they, they didn't hear Him. They still reviled Him. They still were throwing stones at him. They still were mocking him. They still were making his life very difficult. But Noah, out of a good conscience towards God and towards others, didn't stop preaching the message of salvation by you guys coming and, 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 and escaping with me on this boat. He didn't stop preaching that message. He, he, he began prophesying that faithfully to the people as he was commanded by God. And he also was faithful doing his work unto the Lord of building the boat. This guy was old, and he kept building this boat. It took a very long time. But out of all the people who were on the planet at the time, only eight people got on there. And so here we see the value system of heaven. He's saying, listen, God, God wanted all these people to hear this message, but, man, only eight people really received this message and had this experience. So it doesn't matter how many people show up. 
It doesn't matter how many people hear. It doesn't matter how many. We want them all to hear, but it's our job to be faithful and do it as unto the Lord. And whoever gets on the boat, we're thankful they got on the boat. And we grieve over those who didn't, who were lost in that flood. And he's trying to bring the importance of us living our lives in this way before the people as unto the Lord. Verse 21, he said, baptism, which corresponds to this. So he's like saying, I'm using this as an example. He said, this saves you. And he's not talking about the act of baptism saving you. You need to make sure and back up and read the context because there's so much other scripture and even things that Peter has written that would contradict baptism being this saving act, right? So he's not talking about water baptism actually saves you, but He's saying that a person who is saved, a person who has placed their faith and their trust in Christ and who has been made new, they have been baptized in Christ, and baptism is that symbol of that washing away, and they are new. It's like they got on the boat. They got on Noah's ark because they were cleansed. And now all of this stuff that came, they were saved. And that ark is kind of a representation of salvation from destruction and from sin. He said, not as a removal of dirt from the body, he says, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So in other words, I got on the boat out of faith, just like I became a Christian by faith. Because when, when, I, when I get on the boat, it's not because the waters are rising. By that point, it was too late, right? in Noah's day. It was too late to go, oh, wait, 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 no, 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 I want in. Nope. He says, you guys need to get on now. You need to help me accomplish this now because this is coming. And he was preaching that faithfully. And he's saying, listen, he said, when you stepped on the boat, when you received Christ, it's you making this appeal to God for a good conscience because you recognize this. You don't have the ability to produce a good conscience in your own strength and in your own in your own mentality, and your own desire to do good. None of us have that ability. It only comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Amen? And then out of that, I continue to live with a good conscience, now pleasing Him, and now living by faith every single day. And then he talks here, verse 22, He's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to Him. And he's talking about how he has all authority, he's preeminent, he's above all, there's no one greater. Chapter 4, verse 1, he's still continuing the same thought. Remember, the chapter and verse divisions in the Bible were put there for our benefit. That was not a part of the original writings. This was a letter, and so this letter was written continuously, and so this thought, this idea, this context that we're reading and studying today continues from the end of chapter 3 into the beginning of chapter 4. Let's read this. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So in other words, now any suffering that I do, he's liking it unto suffering for Christ, suffering with Christ, because I'm not living for human passions. It's not like that's the goal anymore. Human comforts aren't the goal anymore. A life of ease is not the goal anymore. It's now living for the will of God. And if that causes me to live in a way that I'm challenged, if that causes me to live in a way where I'm restricted in this life by the things that the world wants to put on me, then I'm going to have to live and chalk that up as suffering as unto Christ because he, he suffered for me. 
and I'm, and I'm joining in that suffering. Verse 3, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Here's what the Gentiles want to do. Let, he's saying they want to live in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they will malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Here, Peter's saying, listen, how you live in this world matters a lot. The world wants you to join in. And man, it, it does look appealing because you know what the world wants to sell you on when they sell you all of these things that Peter just mentioned and many others? He's really selling acceptance. That's really what they're selling, social acceptance. Because has that not become a valuable currency in our day and age even more so as people are becoming more polarized and more divided over political hot topic issues. I just want to be accepted. I just don't want anybody to be upset with me. And so what will we do? We'll compromise or we'll join in because, well, if a, a big group of people thinks that, and I feel like I'm the only one who thinks differently, uh, who am I to argue with them? I mean, these people are smarter than me or there's more of them than me. And so we feel this pressure. And so we go, okay, I'll be a lemming and I'll just fall in line and be one of you because we're really seeking after acceptance. We're not living by convictions. We're not living with a good conscience towards God and man. We're not living to please him because we don't want to suffer because, man, who wants to sign up for that? Who wants to get ostracized because they're actually thinking in line with what God would have us think and living righteously before God and man? Why, why, why would we want that? I mean, I don't, I don't want, you know, my boss to make my job any harder than it already is. I, I don't want, you know, things to be in, any more tense in my family than they already are. I don't want, you know, to be that awkward voice in our circle of friends. I mean, I, I, I'll just go along with it. It's fine. I mean, they're doing it and, you know, whatever. It's all good. And we think that that's okay. We think that makes it acceptable because the goal then becomes acceptance. And here Peter is saying not to pursue that because you're not pursuing the things of the flesh anymore. There was a time where maybe you did that, he said. But he said that time's past. He said it's over. If you're in Christ, that time has passed. The time is over. This is not who you are anymore. He's letting them know the way you lived. And, and remember who he's talking to. He's talking to Christians, new Christians, who previously did not grow up with the Jewish tenets of faith, did not grow up learning about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, did not grow up learning about Moses and the prophets and the reading of the law. These are Gentile people who grew up with these type of idolatrous sexually charged practices of worship in these very pagan societies. This was normal to them before Christ. And they're like, yeah, I used to go hang out with my friends and we used to do all this weird idolatry stuff. And now, like, they invite me over to these parties and I kind of want to go because I miss my friends. But Peter's saying, no, it, it, th that's not who you are anymore. You're new now. You've now put away those things. You put to death the deeds of the flesh, and now you're alive in Christ. You've been washed. He says it's like that dirt has been washed off of you, like through this baptism in the Spirit. It's, it, it's, it's just like Noah and the flood and how, 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 you, how they escaped, and they, they began to, to, to actually be separated from what was evil, and they listened and trusted by faith. They're made new. They're made alive, and he's saying with respect, the people are surprised. They're like, hey, you used to come hang out with us. What, you think you're better than us now? He said, they're surprised when you don't join them. They're like, but it's so much fun. Everyone else is doing it. That's kind of that's the message here. Everyone else is doing it. 
And if you're not going to do it, what are they going to do? They're, they're going to malign you. They're going to want to set diff- They're going to want to distance themselves from you. Doesn't matter how you treat them. You could be super nice to them. You could be super gracious to them. Nope, they don't want anything to do with you. They'll ostracize you. But those people are going to give account, Peter said. I know it looks fun. I know that it looks appealing at times. But he said, they're going to give account. God's going to judge both the living and the dead. That means that even if they die in doing these things, they're still not going to escape it. It's not just those who are alive. It's the living and the dead. So what you do in this life matters. Verse 6, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. He's going back and referencing Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. That's pretty intense. Therefore, be self-controlled, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Hmm. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything, everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes up on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. What did I do? This is so strange to me. What's going on? Nobody messed with me before. Nobody bothered me before. No one ever had a problem with me before. Why all of a sudden now? He said, don't be surprised. Like something strange has happened to you now that you've followed Christ and now that you're living to please him and to have that good conscience before God. And man, he said, but rejoice insofar, which is a cool word, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because of the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. But he says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. So he says, if you're going to suffer, don't suffer because you're doing wrong and you're actually reaping the consequence of doing wrong. Don't suffer because you're living unrighteously and you're receiving those rewards of living unrighteously. He said, no, if you're going to suffer, suffer for Christ doing well in the eyes of God and man. Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. That means in the church, family of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? What a heavy text. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Hmm. Here's the bottom line today. Suffering with Christ cleanses us and positions us to live with a good conscience. Suffering with Christ, it cleanses us because... It's weeding things out of us that are not Christ-like as I continue to pursue him. And then it puts me in a position to live before God with a good conscience because I know that he's my pursuit. 
I know he's my goal. I know he's the one I'm seeking to know more and more. So here's my question to us today. Is Jesus worth serving, loving, and trusting when things in your life are difficult? I know it's easy to serve him and love him and trust him when things are going good. Because remember, good can be defined by favorable, happy in my life. Good things are happening. It's a good day. The weather's so good. God is so good. My bank account's full. Got plenty of money to pay all my bills. God is good. I have my health. I'm so healthy. God is good. Everyone seems to like me at work. God is good. I just got a promotion. God is good. Yes, you can attribute those blessings in this life to God and thank Him. But what about when things aren't favorable towards you? Do you go, I just lost my job. God is good. My friends just walked out on me, but you know what? God's still good. Things are really tough right now between me and my spouse, but, but God is still good. Things are really difficult for me at work because I'm a Christian and they're really cracking down and making fun of me and no one wants to sit with me at the lunch table anymore in the break room and Everyone has given me a hard time, and I'm just trying to do my job and trying to look, but God is still good when things are going my way and when they're not. The reality is that things are not going to go someone's way in this election. <laughs> things are not going to go somebody's way. Is Jesus still on the throne, though? Is God still good? What if who gets elected makes life more difficult for you as a Christian? Is God still good? Can you still represent Christ well? Can you still submit to authority and honor God by honoring the emperor? By honoring the president, by honoring the governor, by honoring whoever, the, whatever senator, whatever uh, mayor, whatever, whatever boss? Can you still honor God by representing Christ well? You are Christian first, and you are American second. I'm proud to be an American. I'm right there with you, but I'm Christian first. Amen. Let us not get those out of priority, and let us not blur those lines. Matthew 6, Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You can't have a godly conscience without knowing Scripture. You can't have a godly conscience without being a person of prayer. You can't have a godly conscience without fellowshipping and connecting in deep Christ-centered relationship with the brothers and sisters in Christ. You can't have a godly conscience without first and foremost putting your faith and hope and trust in Jesus. This is a process, folks. Where I'm saved, He saves me, but then I'm growing from that point in Christ-likeness that I'm shedding who I once was and I'm putting to death the deeds of the flesh and I'm learning how to live as a free person now because I was once a slave to sin and that's all I knew. But now I'm free in Jesus and he who the Son sets free is free indeed. And, but now this whole freedom thing is new to me. I don't know how to do freedom. And so a lot of us self-sabotage freedom by making it legalistic. Some of us self-sabotage freedom by putting all of these other rules and all these things and, and that's not the intent. The intent is for you to actually 
focus on living before God with a good conscience so you can experience what freedom is actually like. Freedom isn't doing whatever you want, however you want, whenever you want. Actually, that's the pathway to bondage. That's the pathway to slap and change right back on you. There is freedom in Christ like you've never known. And I pray that today, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that today would be the day of salvation for you. If you've been a person who's been in church your whole life, and today you're stirred and you're shaken, my hope and my prayer for you would be that today that your eyes would be open to see your need for a Savior. Maybe you thought you were a Christian because you had done all the right things, but yet you hadn't experienced the freedom of Christ. You haven't experienced the love of God. Maybe today is the day of your real salvation. Maybe today is the day of your eye-opening instead of this living this double standard and fooling yourself and trying to fool everyone else. Perhaps today is the day when Jesus becomes real to you, where your eyes are open, where your heart has broken over your sin, where your heart is softened from that hardness from that rebellion, from that rejection, because just because you show up in this building does not make you a Christian. Just because you type in wog.church and watch us online doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you give money in the offering doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you join Team Wog and serve doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you give your time, your effort, your energy, you try to be a good person doesn't make you a Christian. The only thing that can make you a Christian is giving your life to Jesus Christ by faith, trusting in him. Jesus, I need you. As many as call on the Lord shall be saved. Jesus, I need you. Is there somebody here today that would say, Jesus, I need you? Is there somebody watching online today that would say, Jesus, I need you? Because I, I, I've, I've been living with this, 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 this torn conscience. I'm trying to please man. And I'm, trying to, I'm trying to make them happy. But then I'm, I, I, I know I, I want to do something for God too. And I'm just trying to balance the scales of justice in my favor. And, and, and I'm trying to earn it. And, 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 and I'm trying to, to make karma kind of work out to where I know I've done bad. But I want to do like, you know, more good than I've done bad. So the scales will tip in my favor. And, and, and folks, that's not the road that leads to salvation. It's a gift of grace. That means you get something you didn't deserve. When you deserved death, when you deserved the punishment, when you deserved the chastisement, guess what? Jesus took all that upon himself. That's why he was beaten. That's why he was put to death on a cross. And that should have been me. That should have been you. And you didn't deserve that. But God's wrath was satisfied by sending his own son to die in your place. Maybe today is the day that that becomes real to you. Maybe today is the day that you can by faith live before God with a clean conscience, having been washed as in baptism, as in the days of Noah, where you're, you're cleansed, you're saved, you're, the dirt is removed. You can live before God with a good conscience, you see. And when I suffer, when I go through difficulty, now I can go, it's worth it, Jesus, because of what you've done. It's hard, it's challenging, doesn't make it easy but it cleanses me and it positions me to continue to pursue him, to continue to live with a good conscience. It starts with us trusting and it continues with us pursuing to know him more. Amen, church? Are you trusting Jesus more with your future than you are trusting the election results with your future? God, help us do this. We need your help because 
we drift. We drift from the pure things because just we, we lack, Lord, just that accountability sometimes, those relationships we lack, Lord, being sensitive to what the Holy Spirit's doing in us. We, we lack being devoted to your word to keep sharpening us and renewing our minds. We, we lack these things. And so, Lord, because we know we're deficient, help us, God, to, to be stirred and renewed today by the preaching of your word and by the working of your Holy Spirit, whether here in the room or online, that we may be stirred to pursue Lord, righteous living, that we may be pursued, we, we may be stirred to pursue holy living. We may be stirred to pursue knowing you more and spending that time with you, that we may be stirred to pursue going deeper and more authentic, transparent, real Christ-centered relationships with other Christians for the sake of sharpening one another, encouraging one another, and having the strength to be able to suffer well, be ready to give a reason for the faith that we have. That no matter what challenges may face us, Lord, that your church would continue to represent Christ well, that we would continue to proclaim the gospel. We thank you for this, Lord.